Today from the Global Lane, growing party divide. DeSantis, Ramaswamy, Trump, and Republicans who want to pull U.S. funding for the war in Ukraine. It's not conservative. It serves the interests of the Russians, and it endangers the interest and safety and security of the United States of America. Christianity rising in Cuba, and the pastor who prepared a funeral for his son, and then God did a miracle. My son Carlitos, when he was 12, he had a car accident, and he lacerated his jugular and carotid artery. And then I heard the voice of God say, saying, I'm going to give your son back to you. Three cases of COVID and Montgomery County, Maryland returns to the masking of students. School officials across the country put on notice. I would say that they're going to have a, a rude awakening come election day. Um, and I, I hope that uh, any other elected official across the country is paying attention. Unending global disasters. Maui wildfire, Hurricane Adalia, a deadly earthquake in Morocco. Now a massive flood kills thousands in Libya. Whom shall he send? And it's all right here on the Global Lane. The war in Ukraine is already shaping up to be a hot issue of debate in the upcoming presidential campaign. Top Republican contenders Donald Trump, Ron DeSantis, and even Vivek Ramaswamy question unlimited U.S. support for the war. A recent CBS YouGov poll shows 56% of Republicans agree the United States should provide Ukraine with less assistance. Only 15% of Democrats share that view. Well, joining us is former Virginia governor, past U.S. ambassador to the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, Jim Gilmore. Governor Gilmore, it's good and a pleasure to talk with you again. It's been a long time. So traditionally, Democrats would be the ones opposing more money for war. The Republicans would be the ones favoring it. Things have flipped a bit. So what do you make of this? Why the divide within the GOP? I think there's not enough public discussion of the vital importance of this uh, support of the Ukrainian government against this Russian aggression. There's just too much coverage right now from dissonant voices that are saying, frankly, not very good things uh, that are pushing this isolationist type of idea. When they say we ought to save the money, when we ought to send it to the southern border, that there's corruption, that's catnip to, to conservative ears. But the truth is that all of that's wrong. This is a danger to the United States of America if this isolationist idea takes shape and uh, tap, captures the majority of the Republican Party. It's not conservative. It serves the interests of the Russians, and it endangers the interest and safety and security of the United States of America. Well, it definitely seems like they're not letting up at all. Putin is going full steam ahead. And I hear a lot of Americans say they're not necessarily opposed to spending more, uh, but, but they know there's a lot of corruption in Ukraine. They want an accountability for the money and the weapons sent. So how do you respond to that? Well, I'm in favor of accountability. A friend of mine has suggested a special uh, inspector general, which I think is a good idea. There's nothing wrong with that. If nothing else, just to allay the concerns and fears of the American people and people in the Republican Party. That's okay with me. But to exaggerate this, recognize right now that Zelensky is the one who's actually trying to combat the corruption. And he's doing it because he can't get into the European Union if his country is known to be corrupt. So he's working to actually clean a lot of that out right now. Uh, but look, the, the principal problem that we're facing is that we just don't have a good enough voice in the United States on this issue. It is the president of the United States who has the duty and the obligation to make the case. And for some reason, he's just not doing it. So as a result, he's partially, if not fully, to blame for this very counterproductive, negative rise of isolationism in and around the Republican Party. It's the president who has the bully pulpit. 
I mean, I can speak all day and I am. I'm doing it right now. But I don't have the national platform that the president does. It's his duty. And all he does right now is be silent on this issue. Every now and then he announces more money. But all that does is just creates the anxiety from the isolationists. Uh, and, uh, you know, this is uh, the, the, the president's duty to speak out on this right now and explain to the American people why this support for Ukraine is vital to the safety and security of the United States. Well, he, he did just send uh, Secretary of State Antony Blinken there to uh, Ukraine. He met with Zelensky. Zelensky also, I understand, uh, fired a bunch of uh, corrupt recruiters, uh, military recruiters. So your thoughts on that? Well, I th that's right. First of all, uh, Secretary of State going over there and making a statement is a positive thing to do. But it doesn't carry the weight of the president of the United States. You can see that. Uh, Blinken has been noted, but it's just been noted. If the president came out and said, look, this is our policy. This is why we're doing it. It's why it's vital to the safety and security of the United States of America. Then I think you would at least be able to get back in the game. And I'm going to continue to do it on the Republican side, because based on my experience as former United States ambassador, I know the score on this. And I know how dangerous this isolationist rise is to the U.S. Well, let's talk about that, because you are the former ambassador. And many people say the United States is covering most of the cost for helping Ukraine. They want to see those countries on Russia's doorstep uh, shoulder more of the burden. So what's the truth about Europe's contribution? The truth is the Europeans are being dramatically supportive of this effort. They're sending tanks. They're actually the ones that are going to send the first airplanes. They're sending money. They're taking care of the refugees. The Polish country is particularly doing that. But these Eastern European countries that I know about, well, Western European Europeans also, they get the deal. They know what's going on because Russia is right there on their doorstep. So let me make this point real clear. If the Russians succeed in conquering Ukraine by force, they will begin to be a major presence, not just in Eastern Europe, but in all of Europe. And if Europe is somehow neutralized out of fear of the Russians, that is an existential danger to the United States. And furthermore, if this keeps on going this way, the isolationists pull us out and the, the conquest of Ukraine succeeds by the Russians, it influences what goes on in the Pacific. And the danger will increase on Taiwan. And you never know, at that point, we may very well be in a world war. Well, let me ask you this then. This war has been going on for more than a year and a half now. So why is no one talking peace? Uh, because the conquest and fascist uh, attack by Putin is in his hands. He's the one who's the aggressor, not us. He's the one that's hoping that we'll negotiate and allow him to keep some of his conquests so he can reload and go later. He's the one that's committing the atrocities, the rapes, the murders and everything that's going on right now, which sets a whole new world standard. He's the one that's doing those things. It, it is in the natural interest of the, or natural instinct of the United States to want to all get along and do a compromise. He knows that. And that's why he's actually playing on the minds of the American people. And he's getting help from these uh, isolationists that are in and around uh, my Republican Party. It's not acceptable, it's dangerous, and it shouldn't be permitted. And he knows that uh, the U.S. eventually grows tired and then pulls out. Okay, former U.S. ambassador to the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, Governor Jim Gilmore. Thank you so much for sharing your time and insights. We appreciate it. Thank you for the opportunity. Religious freedom is under fire and getting worse just 90 miles from the USA and Cuba. Christian leaders are being forced to leave the country. Others are being continually watched, harassed, and detained. Still, Christianity is growing on the communist island nation. 
Well, joining us to provide the latest is Pastor Carlos Alamino. He's founder and president of Proclaim Cuba. Pastor Carlos, it's so good to have you with us here in the USA, here in Virginia Beach. I've got to ask you, the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom says things are getting worse. Tell us what is happening in Cuba today. Valoramos a Cuba hoy como un campo misionero. So Cuba is a mission field. Como un campo en el cual Dios está obrando y haciendo su voluntad en su soberanía. Uh, it's a field where God is, is working and His sovereignty is above everything. Realmente, eh, el ateísmo reina contra el cristianismo, pero es cuestión de llamado. It, it is a place where people don't believe in God, it's above Christianity, uh, but it's all about the calling from God. En un país donde el ateísmo crece, creemos que estar allí para predicar a Jesucristo, la mayor libertad que tenemos es el llamado que Dios nos hizo a trabajar en este lugar y en Atheists este pueblo. Atheists grow in Cuba, uh, they don't like Christianity, but uh, God is calling us to work in this place. How difficult is it for pastors? We've heard that some have been forced out of the country, others are continually watched, some are even detained and questioned. Uh, there's a lot of pressure there, is, is there not? Sí, uh, hay que ver por etapas al país. So we need to look at Cuba in different stages. Estuvo la etapa primero del triunfo de la revolución, que sí se usaron eh, mucha violencia y sacaron a los pastores. It was this first stage where violence was used and many pastors were forced uh, to leave the country. Yo pienso que cuando Dios nos llama al ministerio, eh, Él sabe dónde nos llama. I know that when God calls us to do ministry, He knows where He's calling us to work to. Y para mí es importante que donde Dios te llama hay un campo donde trabajar y hacer y Él va a respaldar su llamado. And for me it's important to understand where God is calling you to work at and He is going to be responsible for His calling. And some places are more difficult than others? En diferentes lugares o diferentes provincias. Different places in Cuba, based on the government leadership, you had more pressure or less pressure. In, in the 90s, uh, there was uh, a new opportunity for the church, and many churches were rebuilt during that period. And that allowed the gospel to grow, and I believe there was a revival in the 90s in Cuba. Tell us what is happening now in Cuba. We understand that there are many house churches, and the church is actually growing despite the difficulties. Hay un avivamiento en Cuba con el Evangelio. I believe there is a revival in Cuba with the gospel. El, el gobierno autorizó las so casas government tolerate house churches and that allow us to grow at the community level. And you're having outdoor meetings as well, large meetings and gatherings, festivals. They, they have allowed to use different places to do gatherings, but it's not common, it's not as, uh, as open as we wish it could be. A lot of uh, Christians have told government officials in Cuba that we make good citizens. We, we follow what the government tells us, we love the Lord, we love our people, we love our country. Uh, does, is that message getting through at all? So it, it's all about the love that God allows the people to have. I, I remember in the scripture where he hardened the heart of the Pharaoh. So God showed his people that despite the circumstances, he is powerful and Christianity is going to be a winner. Are we seeing some miracles in Cuba today? 
También I am the evidence of, of that miracles. I was crippled, I couldn't walk, and God removed uh, that illness from me. And, and my son, Carlitos, when he was 12, he had a car accident, and he lacerated his jugular and carotid artery, and he lost uh, all his blood. So funeral was prepared in the living room in my house, and I stay at the hospital to get him ready uh, for the coffin. And then I heard the voice of God say, saying, you pray for him when he was a child for him to serve me. I pray, God, if my kids are not going to serve you, Lord, take him with you when, before he turns five. So God told me, I'm going to give your son back to you. And, and both of you are involved now with Proclaim Cuba. There was an explosion of miracles after that time, and today we have our goal to turn every church, every house in a training place. We can teach the Bible to children, youth, adults, so they can understand the plan of God for the end of the times. Our main goal is to evangelize the island so that the Cubans can prepare uh, Jesus' return. It doesn't matter any circumstances. My passion is to die in Cuba and share the gospel. Pastor Carlos Alamino, thank you so much for being here. Dios te bendiga. Dios te bendiga. God bless you. God bless you. Back to school, back to COVID. Masking up again, at least for another week in Montgomery County, Maryland, after at least three students tested positive for covid at Rosemary Hills Elementary in Silver Spring. Here's Montgomery County Superintendent Manifa McKnight. Health and safety of our students is most priority. When there is an outbreak, we have protocol that we put in place. We may, in some cases, ask students to mask. Um, if so, we communicate with those communities particularly to let them know why and what the process would be. Might this be a harbinger for public schools this winter? Well, joining us is Bridget Ziegler, director of the Leadership Institute School Board Programs and co-founder of Moms for Liberty. Bridget, thanks for being with us. So I'm assuming parents didn't react too well to remasking their kids at this elementary school in Montgomery County. So what are most saying? Uh, I think people, parents particularly, are incredibly alarmed to see a school district uh, bring forward that component of mask or the option or risks of mask after we saw children's learning um, learning abilities uh, decline substantially, we saw a speech diagnosis, uh, I think it was more than double um, since the pandemic. And it's all because, again, showing putting masks across a child's face or an adult's face um, really does uh, create an impediment to a learning environment. And again, when you think about the goal and mission of an educational institution, it's to create an environment for a child to academically thrive. And this hysteria of masks, um, when we know it doesn't work, uh, is alarming and it has parents fed up. Well, I understand when little children are learning to speak well, they look at your lips and how you enunciate and pronounce things. And it's a little difficult with a mask, is it not? Uh, I'm, that is a concern. Absolutely. Actually, uh, I think with ages zero to two, it uh, increased 168 percent with speech delays or diagnosis. And so, again, you have to consider it's not just the children wearing masks, but it's adults. And I have young children. Those are key elements, uh, key points in their development to be able to read facial cues, to be able to see the shape, like you, as you mentioned, of, of a person's mouth when they're learning to speak. Uh, and we're seeing the impacts of it. So then to see a school district after three cases 
in an elementary school, no less, uh, bring back the notion of masks, of course it's going to have parents uh, upset and um, bringing their voices heard. I know that in, in my experience seeing parents across the country getting active and involved, the, the tipping point for them was during COVID initially uh, in 2020 and 2021 that they were forced masking children and shutting down their schools. So I have no doubt that this is going to continue to raise parents' voices. Um, but this time, I can tell you, I don't believe that they will be taking it lightly, and particularly in Montgomery County, where we've seen incredible activism. Well, what's the likelihood then that other school districts may follow suit if they have outbreaks of COVID this winter? Well, we've seen, uh, unfortunately, too many adults make poor decisions at the detriment of our young children. However, I think over the last two years that we've seen the mobilization uh, as the parental rights movement has expanded, where parents are learning how to become effective, how to organize, and they're actually making their voices heard to their elected officials at a school board. Um, and I was actually talking to somebody recently uh, in California who, who noted they were never politically active. Uh, her name is Jessica, and she said, it was the masking of my children. I will never again allow that. Uh, they're mobilizing and making their voices heard by um, doing email chains, showing up at school board meetings. And, and that would be my advice to anyone across the country if you have any suspicion or even don't wait. Make sure that you let your elected officials know that you will not tolerate any of this draconian uh, policies, particularly that hurt our children. We, again, academic educational institution is there to see a child thrive. And we know for a fact that these masks have had a detrimental impact on children's development. Uh, and it's really, it's, it's alarming, but I believe it's more about control than health at the end of the day. Well, as you suggested, it seems if masking is reinstated this fall and winter, there's going to be a backlash from a lot of parents across the country. So what do you expect might happen here? Well, here's what I think. If, if there are elected officials that believe that they uh, that they believe that it's worthwhile to bring back masks, they have a uh, have, have a rude awakening coming to them. Um, and again, at Montgomery County, I think we're seeing a school board that has not only on the masks, we're seeing them uh, keep fight parental rights at every level. Uh, we recently had an issue with parental rights, uh, a number of parents of all different um, religious backgrounds fight the aspect of opting out of the sexual uh, education curriculum. Now you hear in Montgomery County that they are, they're tossing the idea of bringing masks back. Uh, I, I know that they are incredibly mobilized there. I would say that they're going to have a, a rude awakening come election day. Um, and I, I hope that uh, any other elected official across the country is paying attention. Um, doesn't matter what your party affiliation is. When you're going after people's children, as we saw in the last two years, uh, it brings forth uh, a groundswell of pushback. And I would anticipate that to happen. However, um, there have been some foolish uh, lawmakers out there that are more focused on power and obedience. Um, but I, I believe and feel very strongly that the American people have learned a lot in the last couple of years and we'll make sure that their voices are heard. Okay, so the message is attend school board meetings and let your officials know how you feel and go out and vote. Bridget Absolutely. Ziegler, thanks for being with us. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Wildfire destruction in Maui, Hurricane Adalia in Florida, earthquake in Morocco, and now a destructive flood in Derna, Libya. Late summer tragedies are striking around the world, with thousands dead and lives shattered. In the eastern port city of Derna, Libya, more than 5,100 people reportedly have died after a powerful storm swept through the region, bringing heavy rains. 
The waters overwhelmed two dams and four bridges in Derna, unleashing floods that submerged most of the city. Waves as high as 23 feet reportedly washed entire neighborhoods into the sea. One local authority predicts as many as 20,000 people might have perished in the floods. Folks, I visited Derna in 2011 as Islamic militants searched for deposed dictator Muammar Gaddafi. Of course, the people here in eastern Libya are elated to finally be free from Gaddafi. But they know their freedom comes with a cost, not only in war dead and wounded, but also they know there's a long struggle ahead to rebuild their government and their lives. Here's how Derna looked back then. This is it today. So why did the dams break? After Gaddafi, Libya became a divided government. One government is internationally recognized and based in the capital city of Tripoli. The other is a separate faction based in the east in Benghazi. Years of violence and political chaos led to this moment. The struggle for control of Libya's oil wealth, government corruption, and years of mismanagement resulted in neglect of the nation's crumbling infrastructure. Years of war and lack of central government control led to two dams bursting and perhaps 20,000 or more Libyans killed. It's a horrific tragedy that could have been prevented. This is what disunity, greed, and corruption lead to. My heart aches for the people of Derna. They're wonderful people, so welcoming and hospitable. And when I visited there, they told me all they wanted was for their leaders to share in the nation's oil wealth so they could provide a better life for their families. Now this. Folks, isn't this what all of us just want, just to have a prosperous and successful life without struggling? Libya needs caring people to assist them in their time of need. And I thank God for his provision, sending his people to places like Morocco after the earthquake there. Folks, let's pray for the people of Morocco, Maui, Florida, and now Libya, and ask God what he wants you to do about it. I'm confident that he'll tell you, and some people will pray regularly, and that goes a long way. Others may be told to give their treasure to help. And like he did with the prophet Isaiah, God may ask, whom shall I send? And it may be you who responds, here I am, Lord send me. Well, that's it today from the Global Lane. Be sure to follow us on the CBN News and NRB channels, YouTube, iTunes, and Rumble. And until next time, be blessed.